Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. We interrupt this broadcast before it was history. It was news. It appears as though something has happened in the motor I said, those are shots. Man on the moon. We copy it down, Eagle. I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. I'm Bill Curtis. It's been said that breaking news becomes the first draft of history. What's overlooked is how deeply we relied on broadcast journalists who met the adrenalized demands of those moments, often with courage and daring. Broadcast journalism has a simple, sober purpose, to keep the public informed through the best and worst of times. But the consequence of that labor is profound. As legendary newsman Walter Cronkite wrote, the free press is the central nervous system of a democratic society. No true democracy can exist without it. History has borne out that wisdom. But before it was history, it was news. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade in downtown Dallas. What was a wonderful welcome in downtown Dallas has become a scene of uh, indescribable horror. I didn't shoot anybody, sir. I haven't been told what I'm here for. The police department decided to move Oswald, and that's when uh, all hell broke loose. Do you have anything to say in your defense? There's a shot. Oswald has been shot. One of the most sensational developments in this already fantastic case i'm brian williams from dallas texas the flash apparently official president kennedy died at 1 p.m central standard time two o'clock eastern standard time some 38 minutes ago it was the day when americans feared our country was coming apart our young president john fitzgerald kennedy had been assassinated November 22nd, 1963, in cold blood, in the open air, in an open car as his motorcade made its way through Dealey Plaza 
in downtown Dallas, Texas. It was an event that sparked an unprecedented four days of nonstop coverage as American life came to a virtual halt. Millions of ordinary Americans found themselves transfixed in front of their televisions, observing days of national mourning. They could not know that they were about to witness another murder on live television just days after a national tragedy. And all of it started to unfold within an hour of President Kennedy's assassination. Police had a description of the gunman they were looking for. It was uh, 5'10", 165 pounds, white Anglo uh, man. Um, it'd be the suspect in the shooting. Gary DeLon was a reporter for Dallas radio station KLIF. And so uh, we put this out on the air, and it so happened that there was a young man named Johnny Brewer, 23 years old. He was the manager of the Hardest Shoe Store on uh, Jefferson in Fort Worth, which is two doors or three down from the Texas Theater. And uh, he was monitoring KLIF, and he heard my reports, and, and he suddenly he sees this uh, young guy kind of lurking and yet looking very suspicious. So Johnny opened the door and looked and saw this guy run into the theater. Well, it so happened that the young lady in, in the box office, he raced right past her. Well, she was also listening to KIF at the time. And so Johnny Brewer said, hey, why, did, did you see? He said, she said, yeah, he ran and didn't pay. So uh, Johnny called the police department and said, I think there may be a suspect out here that you're looking for. Well, now, don't forget this had also happened after the shooting of J.D. Tippett because J.D. Tippett was shot four times by Lee Harvey Oswald. There were several members of the neighborhood who saw him uh, shoot the officer. And then he raced away, and that's when Oswald fed to the, to the Texas theater. And as he raced in, he went up to the balcony first. Then he changed his mind and goes down next to the back row and sits down. So Emin McDonald and three or four other cops went in and saw this guy, and they went over to him. Well, Oswald had the 38 in his, apparently his waistband or his pocket, I'm not sure. But he pulled it out. They started arresting. First off, he hit Eminem McDonald. I, I, we called him Nick, and, and hit him in the face, right on the left cheek. And so then he turned and hit Oswald in the face. Then that's when they apprehended him, and they got him into the police station and took him to the PD. Has the gentleman been identified? Yes, sir. He's been identified for killing the officer. Right. Has any right. identification been attempted for the killing of the president? Not yet. No. Yeah, we want to say this. Not this yet. investigation has been carried on jointly by the FBI, the Secret Service, the Rangers, and the Dallas Police Department. Captain Fritz has been in charge. It was a police officer's nightmare. For the next two days, hundreds of reporters and photographers descended on the Dallas police headquarters, hoping to catch a glimpse of this accused assassin. Bob Huffaker was a reporter for the Dallas CBS radio and television affiliate KRLD. The reporters poured in from all over the world. Frankly, I think, in retrospect, many of them were, were thinking that this was the story of their lives. They were... There was a, a fairly uh, uh, loose security, in fact, in, in the police headquarters at that particular time. 
They were not restricting us from, from going in and out of the police station. Activities shifted to the Dallas Police Department where there was a crowd in the hallway as they marched Oswald out back and forth for interviews. In full view and within arm's length of the assembled press corps, Oswald was walked down the 20 feet of hallway between the homicide office and the locked door leading to the jail elevator at least 15 times after his arrival, all while being pelted with reporters' questions. ABC News producer Bill Lord recalls the chaotic scene. I recall us being in the hallway when the uh, one of the detectives brought out the rifle that Oswald was using. I didn't shoot anybody, sir. I haven't been told what I'm here for. Do you have a lawyer? No, sir, I don't. I like legal representation. These police officers have not allowed me to, to have any. I, uh, I don't know what this is all about. I work in that building. Naturally, if I work in that building, yes, sir. So it was it was a hub of activity at that point. The police were dazzled by all of the people. They were trying to cooperate, but I think they, they kind of liked the attention. Ike Pappas was then a reporter for New York radio station WNEW. We were putting pressure on the police chief, Jesse Curry, to bring Oswald down. We wanted to see Oswald. You know, and somebody suggested that, uh, that the police were beating him up to, to Curry because he had killed the president. We're not beating him up, but he did get injured. His eye was hurt, and he was seen with this big mouse on his face. But in any event, Curry caved and uh, made an agreement with us to bring him down at midnight to the lineup room. On the provision, there would be no questions. Well, absolutely no questions. No que- guarantee. Midnight comes, they bring him down. Of course, as soon as he hit the door, everybody has questions. The suspect is coming down the aisle and into identification room. So far, we are... We won't be able to pick him up until he's been brought in front of our cameras. There he is, a slight fellow with uh, some scratches. And- My father said we know nothing about this situation here. I would like to have re- uh, legal representation. Well, I was questioned uh, by judge, however, I uh, protested at that time that I was not allowed legal representation. But during that, uh, that uh, very short and sweet hearing, uh, I really don't know what what the situation is about. Nobody has told me anything except for accused of uh, of uh, murdering a police. I know nothing more than that. I do request uh, for someone to come forward to give me uh, a legal assistance. Bill Lord was standing less than six feet away from Oswald in the packed room. He was under a lot of pressure. Again, we're we're sort of colored. Our perception is colored by belief at that time that he was the killer. Did you kill the president? No, I've not been charged with that. In fact, nobody has said that to me yet. Uh, The first thing I heard about it was when the newspaper reporters in the hall 
uh, asked me that question. Knowing charges had been filed against Oswald, Bill Lord then corrected Oswald. You have been. Nobody said what, sir? You have. Nobody said what. Okay, man. Oswald. That was Oswald. Lee Oswald, who was charged with the murder of the president of the United States, so he said he did not know it. It was surreal. Approximately a hundred people crowded into that small lineup room. No identification required for entry. And among the crush of Dallas police officers and reporters was a nightclub owner named Jack Ruby. He had a sordid reputation and was known as a hanger-on in both police and media circles. Here again is Gary DeLong. Jack Leon Rubenstein, known as Jack Ruby, was an insignificant little Jewish guy from Chicago. And he um, had a punchboard operation in Chicago He was well-known by the mafia and the mob up there, so people would tell me. But his sister, Eva Grant, operated a nightclub called the Singapore Club. And uh, she had been after Jack for years to come down and work with her at the Singapore Club. Well, so finally, he did leave Chicago and came to Dallas. He was a a wannabe, you know, a little insignificant guy and wanted to be a big man. After he'd worked with Eva for a long time at Singapore Club, he opened his own club called the Carousel Club in downtown Dallas. He always had some business cards and he'd have them in his hand. He'd say, hey, come on, be my guest over at the Carousel Club, be my guest. So he always had those out to the media and the cops too. And he knew a lot of cops. He knew particularly the vice squad officers too. Well, he was a good friend of a guy named Russ Knight. And Russ and I did uh, a shift together at KLIF during the week. And so Jack came to KLIF. He came up during the, the broadcast time of all the assassination, and he would pick up the phone and say, Jack Ruby, KLIF News, how can I help you? Well, he got to be a nuisance, they told me, because I was at the police department, and I'd been there now for a long time. And and uh, so the program director and others wanted to get rid of him. So someone, I don't know who made the suggestion, they said, look, Jack, Gary DeLon has been over at the police department for many, many hours. He hasn't had time to get a drink. He can't get a sandwich. He needs something to eat. He's been there for seven or eight hours. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'll take some sandwiches. So that's when Jack goes to Phil's Delicatessen out on Cedar Springs in Dallas on his way to the police department. So when Jack gets to the police department that night, he knew how to go down to the police locker room and the lineup room. And just at that time, as if fate would have it, here comes a group of police officers escorting Oswald. That's when he starts thinking, oh, I'm going to be an Avenger for Jack, for Jacqueline Kennedy. And that's what the, the question was after, uh, after he was arrested. He said he wanted to kill that son of a bitch to avenge Jackie Kennedy. And so um, when Jack couldn't find me, he started giving birth to this idea in his his little mind, then, hey, maybe he could become an Avenger. Ike Pappas recalls his own run-in with Jack Ruby. After they took Oswald away, I see Henry Wade, the district attorney of Dallas County, surrounded by some reporters, and he's having a little press conference. And uh, his press conference has to do with what's going to happen next uh, on the legal front. And uh, up comes a guy to me wearing a black suit with a gray fedora, 
And to me, he looked like a vice cop. He looked like a detective, and I needed a telephone. So if he was a detective, he had a phone. So I, I had to humor him, and, and he came up and he said, are you a reporter? And I said, yes, are you a policeman? Huh? He said, no, I'm Jack Ruby. I run the carousel club down the, down the block. He said, and then he pulls his card out, and he, and he gives me his card. And uh, it says, Jack Ruby's Carousel Club, drinks, uh, uh, food, uh, dancing, you know. And he said, why don't you get some of your, uh, you know, your, where are you from, New York? Yeah, all right. He said, well, why don't you get some of your guys and uh, come down to the club? You can have a great time. We got booze, we got whatever you need, you know. And I, and I am stunned by this. Here is this guy, pardon the expression, pimping the press right after, in the middle of the city hall. Anyway. He said, you need a telephone? Just a minute. Jack Ruby goes over to Henry Wade, the, the district attorney at Dallas County, and tugs on his sleeve. And he said, Henry, there's a guy over, over there. He wants to interview you. Can he use your office? And he said, yeah, take him in there. And, uh, and he wants to use the phone. Okay, let him use the phone. So now here, astoundingly, is Jack Ruby <laughs> escorting me into Henry Wade's office to use the telephone. And in, in walks way, I'm dialed to New York by this time, and I'm giving everybody a running account of the press conference uh, with, with, uh, with Oswald. Ruby disappears. We will continue with our story in just a moment. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. I'm Brian Williams. It was the policy in Dallas that when prisoners are charged with a felony, they're handed over to the county sheriff. Police Chief Jesse Curry decided to move Oswald, who was charged with two felony counts of murder, to the county jail on Sunday morning. The night before, both the FBI and the sheriff's office received telephone calls threatening Oswald's life. Despite those threats, the transfer was announced to the press, and by morning, the police station was surrounded with a crowd of nearly 2,500 people hoping to catch a glimpse of JFK's alleged assassin. This is Bill Lord of ABC News. I stayed overnight in the police station. We were down in the basement. ABC had a real tough time because we had only one remote unit that was WFAA's and the New York producers had to decide where are we going to put that? In the basement of the Dallas Police Department or out in Dilly Plaza where he was going to be driven to the uh, sheriff's office. So we made at that time, I think, a reasonable decision. Damned if you do and damned if you don't. So the camera was in Dealey Plaza. Well, it turned out that they put me on a telephone with an extremely short cord, and I was back up just in case something happened. The CBS affiliate KRLD had their camera in place for their local coverage and to record the transfer for later airing by CBS News. NBC News correspondent Tom Pettit, cameraman Homer Vinso, and field director Fred Reinstein were also in that basement. In a 1983 documentary, Reinstein recalled the conversation he had with producer Chad Hagen, who was in studio in New York alongside anchor Frank McGee. 
I am telling him, Chet, this is the last time you're ever going to see this guy. They're going to get him out of this Keystone cop situation. They're going to put him in the county jail. The feds are going to have it. And he's going to be treated like a regular person with rights. you got to see him now. Producer Chad Hagen. And Fred told me that he could hear the old elevator in the city jail as it came down. It was very noisy. This is NBC News cameraman Homer Vinso. Jim, as soon as I can get it to it. The director told me, get a close-up after you've established the scene to start with. Let me have it. I want it. And I hit my button to McGee's ear, and I said, Dallas now. And his introduction was very brief. To Dallas, Texas, and Tom Pettit. By the time Lee Harvey Oswald reached the basement, the narrow corridor leading to the transfer vehicle was filled with journalists and cables and blinding television camera lights. And for the first time in the still relatively new medium of television news, a nation of television viewers saw a shocking event as it happened. Being let out by uh, Captain Fritz. Here's ABC's Bill Lord. So I saw Oswald coming out of the elevator. He then went toward the exit. I could no longer see him because there was a group of police officials blocking my view. At this point, Ike Pappas was getting into position. As Oswald came up to my position, I had to talk him up to that point. I was saying, here's the prisoner. He's changed into a black sweater from his t-shirt he's being as he was moving and uh, I heard footsteps and then I saw this flash in front of me of a black black image a black suit now the prisoner is being moved out toward an armored car there is the prisoner you have anything to say in your defense and then bang and the impact of the weapon I was so close that I felt the explosion of the gases from the muzzle impacting on my body there's a shot Oswald has been shot. Mass confusion here. Holy mackerel. A shot rang out as he was led into his car. He was thrown to the ground. The police have the entire area blocked off. An ambulance uh, has arrived. They are rushing a mobile stretcher in. Here is young Oswald now. He is being hustled in. He is lying flat. To me, he appears dead. There is a gunshot wound in his lower abdomen. He is white, lying in the ambulance. His head is back. He is out, unconscious. Dangling, his hand is dangling over the uh, edge of the stretcher. And now the ambulance is moving out. The flashing red lights. One of the most sensational developments in this already fantastic case. Despite the danger, NBC's live camera stayed hot and Tom Pettit kept reporting as Jack Ruby was wrestled to the ground. There's a man with a gun. Absolute panic. Ike Pappas recalls the whole nightmarish event. In nanoseconds, I said, and they, these were just feelings. They weren't even thoughts. Absolute panic here in the basement of Dallas Police Headquarters. You must say something now. Don't freeze. 
This is just history. Detectives have their guns drawn. What's happened here? He's been shot. Well, say it. There is no question about it. Oswald has been shot at point-blank range, fired into his stomach. Oswald has been shot. A shot rang out. Now he's boning and he falls, and then, and there was a and there was a fight. I didn't know it was who shot it. I I didn't see a face. I just I just saw a flash on Oswald's black sweater, and the impact of this weapon. I thought that I had been hit, because you uh, sometimes you read that uh, you can take a, a shot in your side and you don't even know that you that you're wounded. And I I, I kind of looked down after I got I, after I said that uh, that he's been shot. And uh, every everything, all of the the uh, detectives pulled their guns out uh, of their holsters, and uh, and they were uh, they, they were telling everybody to freeze. And uh, and and I saw a Texas Ranger uh, point a gun at me, and he said, "Freeze!" Now I'm trying to broadcast, and I'm down on one knee, and I'm talking like this. I'm trying to freeze as much as I possibly can, you know, but I have to keep talking because I felt that there was going to be a crossfire. Of, of, of shooting and, and you know, hurting everybody in between. But what happened was that Oswald collapsed uh, onto the two detectives, you know, the, the two detectives, and I saw them dragging him back in while a fight was going on in front of me, while they were subduing Ruby, grabbing his gun and so forth, which could have gone off uh, hitting anybody. But uh, the thought I had was just report the story. He's been shot, say it that way. Stay calm and do it. But the worst thing you can do is freeze. Jack Ruby was tackled and arrested on the spot. Lee Harvey Oswald had been mortally wounded. He lost consciousness as he was loaded into an ambulance and rushed to Parkland Memorial Hospital, the same hospital where President Kennedy had been pronounced dead just two days earlier. Shortly after 1 p.m. local time that afternoon, the attending surgeon addressed the media to deliver the news. Dr. Tom Shires, the Chief of Surgery at Parkland Memorial Hospital and Southwestern Medical School, is coming into the room now to make a statement on Mr. Oswald. Dr. Shires has left the operating Dr. room, the operating table where Oswald is lying, to make this statement. Mr. Oswald died at 1.07 our time in the operating room of the gunshot wound which he had received. Would you describe his last moments on the operating table, please? The last moments were rather hectic. He had a cardiac arrest from all the massive blood loss, massive injury. The last few minutes were spent in cardiac resuscitation, open heart massage, uh, electrical defibrillation, internal defibrillation, and finally there were absolutely no signs of life at all. Instead of bringing some sort of forced emotional closure to the JFK assassination with his eye-for-an-eye murder of the lead suspect, the murder of Lee Harvey Oswald by Jack Ruby only added more suspicion and mystery. It was a gut punch to a national television audience already shocked by what they had witnessed. But something else had happened in those days before that dark Thanksgiving of 1963. Television news had cemented its role in our national life. The audience grieving the loss of our young president found themselves witnessing a live act of gun violence leading millions to wonder what was becoming of us.
I'm Brian Williams. For more information on this episode, visit our website, weinterruptthisbroadcast.org. And now, please, this special message from Bill Curtis about the Broadcasters Foundation of America. Every day, broadcasters bring us the information and entertainment that enriches our lives and often saves lives. It's not only the person on air. It's the producers, engineers, management, sales, marketers, camera operators, and more. For more than 70 years, the Broadcasters Foundation of America, a 501c3 charity, has been a safety net providing financial assistance to broadcasters and their families in acute need from a debilitating illness, tragic accident, or unthinkable catastrophe. Whether a retired broadcaster who can't afford life-saving medications, a family struggling to make ends meet after a crippling accident or severe damage from a hurricane to the home of a broadcaster in need, the Broadcasters Foundation has always been there to help those in our industry who need it most. Now more than ever, the Broadcasters Foundation is in need of your donations to continue its charitable mission. Please consider a donation today at broadcastersfoundation.org. That's broadcastersfoundation.org. On behalf of all our broadcasters in all areas of our industry, we thank you.